I don't know how it sort of came about. This is the bit I, I still haven't kind of fathomed. But something changed from it just wanting to be a sort of a holiday off to Bali. I think to suddenly then feeling as if actually I've worked for over 52 weeks without a break. I'm absolutely exhausted, but I also feel as if I want to do something quite special with this time off that I'm going to have. And something just kind of spoke to me as if I would really like to go to Everest. And of course, because I had this huge relationship with my dad where he was obsessed with the Himalayas, absolutely obsessed with Everest, obsessed with mountains generally, and I'd grown up with all of that. I kind of thought, actually, I'd really like to do base camp. Join me on an adventure, a literary romp through India. Meet me at the corner of Patchouli and Chai, where books, cinema, and conversation collide. I'm Lovelace Cook, I'll be your tour guide. Welcome to Bollywood and Books. I was thinking back to the last time I saw you, Maddie, and we were, if I recall correctly, we were in a restaurant on the clifftops in Varkala, and you were getting ready to leave India the next day. Oh, was it the next day I was going? Varkala was very much the end of my first time in India. I just remember that morning because that was like the longest breakfast ever, wasn't it? We were there maybe three or four hours. It was so lovely. That's one of the things I absolutely adored about travel in India, just to be able to meet new people, find out what they were doing on the journeys. And yes, I think we went from breakfast to lunch and ended up indulging in some desserts. I know. It was an amazing place, wasn't it? Had you gone for a yoga retreat? What were you doing in India? It was a really funny thing because actually to sort of spiral back in time a little bit, I think I told you at the time, you know, I'd been married and had been in quite a toxic relationship and that had all kind of come to an end at the end of 2013. And I just then sort of ploughed myself into work and was on a sort of big drama for Channel 4 and I got offered work in Manchester uh, and it was a very big, long job quite stressful. I remember sort of at the tail end of it thinking, you know, my body was kind of saying, you need to stop, you know, like it's enough now. It's kind of like I buried the whole trauma of the end of the marriage and everything for all of those months, just consumed myself with work. But something physical was kind of saying, you need to stop, you need to stop. I found this kind of uh, retreat actually in Thailand. It wasn't anything to do with yoga or anything. It was um, it was just more of like a holistic healing, good food and right on the beach and all of that kind of thing. And very much just a place to kind of switch off. And I thought that's maybe just what I need. It was actually a trip to Thailand that I was headed out for. I, I embarked on that thinking, well, I had no jobs planned, obviously, with being freelance in TV work. And I just thought, I'm just going to depart. But the original plans were about a month in Thailand. That's what I did. It was a lovely healing environment to be in. That was maybe what I needed. It was something internal that needed to kind of be healed as well. What actually happened was I had very, very briefly dabbled at yoga in the UK previously, just a couple of times, and I could never get it. I'd never quite understood what it was about at all. Actually, when I got to this retreat, I think probably because I had nothing else, there was no other sort of, you know, ambition to do anything else. I embarked on their daily, they had a morning yoga class this beautiful French woman called Sylvie. 
I started doing it and I remember the very first class and, and it was just ridiculous. I couldn't do anything, you know, my timing was out, I was falling over <laughs> and I thought, oh, what on earth is this? You know, it's a, oh, this yoga thing. But something in me kept it, no, pursue it, you know, keep doing it, keep keep having a go. And for some reason, just in a very short space of time, literally in a, in a couple of days, I got absolutely absorbed by it. And it was as if something had really clicked and it was, yes, I now understand what yoga is and what it means and what it does and she was so amazing I remember she actually said to me when I said I've just had this sort of almost like a light bulb moment about yoga and I said it's bizarre because I've tried it in the past and just never quite got what it was about and she said yes but this time Maddie yoga was speaking to you it was reaching out for you we got talking a lot she'd done a lot of traveling and she'd done a lot of extensive yoga practice in India I just got it in my head thinking actually What's to stop me going onwards to India from here? It was a very unplanned thing, but actually ended up being probably one of the most profound experiences of my life, which I'm sure you'll know about as well, because it, it touches you. I remember a friend of mine, she said, she said, oh, in India, it changes you. You know, and at the time I thought, oh, I, I don't know what you mean by that really. You know, I'm not, I'm not convinced. But actually there is something very, very mystical about it that does seem to somehow get under your skin. It's certainly under mine. So I ended up then doing a bit of traveling around and meandering my way down to the south to Kerala to the Shivananda ashram. And I stayed there for about a month before heading onwards then to Vaughan. That was kind of going to be the end of my trip. But what an experience, you know, to be fully absorbed in almost like a monastic approach, actually, to yoga. You know, it was a yoga ashram. That was where I met uh, Tatiana and various others who I'm now still kind of friendly with. That is absolutely amazing. Yes, I can so identify with many things you've just described, Maddie. And yes, India changed me. I vowed after the first time I would never go back. I did. And it does something to you. I can't really describe it. It's magical, mystical. It's just part of our spiritual journey. I'm so glad that you paid attention to your body and what your body was telling you to leave, to go. And I think that somehow there's something extraordinary and mystical about that. There are no words for it. But the things that led you to Thailand and then that inspired you to go ahead and go to India, no plans. I mean, it's just as I said, I have no words for that. But it makes such a huge impact in our lives. Yeah, absolutely. And that kind of process of what happened then was obviously, I think, just the gateway into how I see a lot of things now, which really is about that idea of trusting, you know, trusting in the unseen or having faith in something that you can't predetermine or you haven't got any proof for. But just that there's a gut instinct, there's something in you that's telling you it's the right thing to do. And I think I've always been a little bit like that, actually. I've always kind of had these really strong gut reactions to things or senses about something. And even though the majority of people will tell me, oh, what, what are you going on about? That's crazy. You can't be doing that. No. But it's like an overriding feeling of this is really what I should be doing. And this is somehow going to make sense. I don't know how yet, but it will. <laughs> you know, and I kind of try to have courage in those feelings now. Those experiences are transformative. And yet we don't, we don't know. We set off on a journey saying, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go for it. And I completely understand where it wasn't easy. I mean, you have to adapt. It's difficult to adapt. We have to really learn how to just take it a day at a time. That's one of the things that India demonstrated for me. And that was how to be in the moment, in the here and now. So Maddie, tell me, how was it that you went from India to the base camp of Everest? 
Yeah, so there was a little bit of time, I think, between India and, and that. It was like three years later. But again, what I'd sort of found myself was just throwing myself back into work, really, and just getting on with it. I recognised that Manchester was where I wanted to be. So I made that my home and found a lovely little cottage to rent. And I found this really magical place and got asked to do another big job. And that was from something like February of what would have been 2016, this big TV job, which went on right through until about October time. And, oh, it was, you know, it was endless. And I had every intention come that October, I was actually looking into going to Bali every two or three years. You know, I sort of feel, I get that urge to go back to sort of Southeast Asia, give myself that time. And I had this really strong feeling that I wanted to, there was an ashram in Bali that I really wanted to stay at. I was very much at the latter stages of planning it when the designer I was working with had said to me that he had this really great job which was actually going to be in London um, and it was only for a few months and would I just kind of go straight from this big job that we were coming to the end of and just work right through till January and then that would be it everything would be finished and I could go off and I could do whatever I wanted and all of that and it was a bit like oh I was all prepared to be going to Bali you know <laughs> I'd always swore I'd never go back to London because I lived there for 12 years sort of originally setting up my career from out of the BBC so I'd left it and swore I was never <laughs> never going back but he did lure me back down there and I did do that job. But come the January, I was absolutely exhausted. I don't know how it sort of came about. This is the bit I, I still haven't kind of fathomed. But something changed from it just wanting to be a sort of a holiday off to Bali. I think to suddenly then feeling as if actually I've worked for over 52 weeks without a break. I'm absolutely exhausted, but I also feel as if I want to do something quite special with this time off that I'm going to have. And something just kind of spoke to me as if I would really like to go to Everest. And of course, because I had this huge relationship with my dad, where he yes. was obsessed with the Himalayas, absolutely obsessed with Everest, obsessed with mountains generally, and I'd grown up with all of that. I kind of thought, actually, I'd really like to do base camp. And I remember telling my dad, you know, and he was absolutely, he couldn't quite take it in. He was, oh, like a child of mine, you know, like my oh, daughter yeah. doing it. I've obviously got two brothers, you know, but there was nothing. It was just that idea that, oh my goodness, like you could do that, you know. But I realised that actually doing this job in London, I didn't have access to a gym and the hours were so long I was working. And I thought, well, I've got to get fit somehow. What am I going to do? And I had to just draw on the two things that I knew I could do and I could do relatively, you know, without too much other things other than myself. And that was running and yoga. At the time, I was actually staying in this old convent. <laughs> I found that actually going back into my room at night because there was no internet, no phones, there was no signal or anything. I didn't have anything else to do. I was just practicing yoga in my room. And then I was getting up at a ridiculous hour, like 4 a.m., to get out and run through the streets of London in order to kind of get a run in before starting work at 7 a.m. And I just thought, well, I don't know if I've done enough for this trip, but, I, you know, I've... I've, I've I rely on my yoga and my running and hopefully that's kind of both the kind of breathing and mental side of it and fitness. So come the February, I was then heading out to Nepal to take part in this expedition. That was really great. And the one thing that I really am so, so pleased I did was that my dad wasn't brilliant with technology. He just recently got a mobile phone and he was using it, but he didn't know how to text message at all. So I had spent a little bit of time before I went out there with him 
and just said, Dad, you know, let me teach you how to text because I would love to take you on this journey with me because you're not well enough. I mean, my dad had had heart mm. trouble in his 50s. He said it was the one bucket list ambition for him to go to. He would have loved to do that. So I was a bit like, right, Dad, I'm taking you with me. We had such a special bond, you know, we were really, really close. So pops, you know, as they call him. So what was brilliant was that I managed to teach him WhatsApp. It was really great because even then my brothers, and so they were... You know, they got into the whole texting thing with my dad and he was loving it. And what was really special was that him and I shared these moments on WhatsApp as I was doing this journey. We shared some really, really special moments. And there was one in particular, because obviously there's a time difference between the UK. So often what would happen, I'd, I'd do something, I'd photograph it or whatever, message him and say, Pops, look at this. He would message me, oh, this is fantastic, Maddie, and all that. And then there was this one particular morning where it was only two or three um, days away from reaching base camp and the air was getting much, much thinner. The altitude was really kicking in. And I was suffering quite badly with insomnia from that. Everyone was taking tablets and all sorts of things. And I managed to resist all of that. And luckily my yoga and running had proved to be good. So that, that was great. But the insomnia was something that I seemed to suffer from. And so in the early hours it must have been about four in the morning but it was actually really bright outside I got up and it was so silent because what you realize when you start getting that high that nothing really exists there you know so birds and things like that it's it's completely silent and I just remember stepping out of the tent this morning nobody else there and looking up at the mountains in front of us and the moon was just absolutely spectacular and just glowing in all her glory. And I just thought, oh, how amazing is this? And I just took a photograph there and then, and I thought, I must send this to Pops and just sent it, thinking he'll get it in a few hours. And what I hadn't really anticipated was because I was up so early, it was actually still late in the UK and my dad hadn't gone to bed. And so he was still up. So he got that message at the exact same moment and looked at it and then in response sent me a picture of the moon from the UK you know so that we could kind of see each other we were we were both looking at the same moon but just from a different place you know and we got to share that really beautiful moment. Maddie that just makes me want to weep it's so beautiful. There were quite a few moments like that actually and reaching base camp was quite special because I had said to him before I'd gone in the last like, like the night before you know when I was packing and ready to leave and I suddenly thought actually dad is there anything you want me to take is there anything you'd like me to leave at, at base camp and he gave me it was a set of because my dad was catholic you know he's very religious very uh, great believer he gave me a, a set of rosary beads that were actually from Bethlehem wooden and beautiful but he said I want you to take them and he said leave them there when we made it to base camp it was a really beautiful moment and had this really special moment. I lay the rosary beads amongst all of the other prayer flags and that beautiful kind of stone where everyone leaves a little something to, to mark that they've been there. I sent him a little picture saying, there they are, Dad. They're, they're here, Everest, at the top of the world. And probably what I didn't appreciate was literally four months later, my, my dad died very suddenly. I, I almost feel as if without maybe both of us knowing I was taking him there. You know, I was leaving this mark on the mountain, on the highest point of the planet, you know, in preparation that the mountains were going to come for him. I feel quite lucky, you know, that I got to have that experience because obviously I had absolutely no 
knowledge. I mean, my dad, it actually ended up, it wasn't anything to do with his heart. By surprise, we found out he had lung cancer and literally oh. from being diagnosed on the Monday, he died on the Saturday without knowing it. And I think probably because obviously he had so much heart trouble, it was masked by a lot of that and his medication. So it was very sudden, very unexpected. It's again, quite mystical that I was guided to do that trip for him and that he knew that I'd got there. And then four months later, he was gone. A very meaningful trip. That experience is so touching. I feel it so deeply. And I understand. And yes, you did take him there. I think having that bond, and it's just a remarkable experience, you know. We don't know. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen. I've been there with my parents as well. It's a huge experience. Just a profound experience. But as we said earlier... There are simply no words. It's mystical. Just that connection that we have with spirit. Then the other thing that occurred when I was there was that just a short while beforehand, my good friend Hannah had set up this mini mermaids running club. It's a charity for the well-being of of young girls between the ages of 7 and 11, trying to teach them about self-confidence, wellness, resilience, mindfulness, you know, all of these things that Sadly, in this day and age particularly, all those negative media images that they get and about perfection and about size and all that kind of thing. So it was a really positive thing that she was doing that I tapped into. I'd helped out at a couple of little runs with the girls. She sent me a T-shirt because they have a theme. It was this lovely cotton green T-shirt which had this lovely logo on it and it said the finish line is just the beginning. I hadn't said anything to Hannah, but I thought, I'm going to take that T-shirt with me. And if I get the opportunity, I'm going to wear it when I get to base camp. So actually, we've joked about it since because I said there was, a, there was a very strict limit on the flight from uh, Kathmandu to Lukla, you know, about weight of everything that you had in your, in your bag. And I said, carrying that T-shirt, I said, was the most heavy and <laughs> luxury item, you know, because everything else was super thin, technical T-shirt. This was a big, heavy cotton T-shirt. But it was so lovely that I kept that completely new and untouched until I got there to base camp and then I put it on and got photographs and sent it to Hannah and I think I I did some kind of quote about girls with dreams become women with vision and I sent her this thing and I think she was just absolutely gobsmacked that I'd done this it was completely unexpected it was like a starting point really for my relationship with this charity trying to empower young girls into believing that they can do anything they want you know that was a really nice thing. That is such a gift to those young girls, Maddie. I wish I'd had that kind of guide or mentor in my life. I had to find that within myself. And I think you did as well. You're a wonderful example for those young girls. Oh, thank you. I mean, <laughs> I don't know, but I just, I don't know, something kind of spoke to me. It was very much about believing that you can. And there I was, and I still am, just a very, very ordinary person, but with a belief that that you can, you can do anything that you're supposed to do. I think in some ways, yes, perhaps we are ordinary. But at the same time, I don't think we ought to minimize our accomplishments. And you're describing yourself as ordinary. Oh my gosh, Maddie, it reminds me of an experience that comes to mind quite frequently. When I was teaching young children, there was a little boy named Robert. One day he kept putting his hands in his pocket. And I said, Robert, what do you have in your pocket? And he said, oh, it's just an ordinary worm. (laughs) And sometimes I think, I'm just an ordinary worm. (laughs) 
I like the idea. <laughs> I think that by your example, you're showing those young girls how to be extraordinary, how to live in an extraordinary way that maybe they'd never dreamed of. And as you said, the dreams, what's that quote again? It was just really lovely. Girls with dreams become women with vision. All those years, you know, when Pops and I used to talk about Everest and the mountains, and he would inspire me with how he would sort of tell me about the tales of old mountaineers. He always had me absolutely fascinated. Was your Pops a mountaineer also? He wasn't at all. That's the really unusual thing. He was absolutely obsessed with it, but didn't actually do any of that himself. He was just really fascinated by it, like a keen sports person who just observed sport. He was a bit like that with mountaineering. I remember thinking that actually, after I'd done Everest and we'd gone onwards, there was a, a vista that I, I took, you know, the whole Himalayan mountain range, and I sent it to him, and he could name those mountains before I even t- told him. And I think he got absolutely obsessed with and just fascinated that the idea of human endeavour and what we are capable of, you know. And so I think it just inspired like a lifelong love of the mountains and people who climb them and summit mountains and... Yeah, so it was great. Hearing that really touches me as well, Maddie. And Maddie, from base camp on Everest with your Mini Mermaids t-shirt, how do you end up going to the Arctic? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I have done some pretty boring stuff in between, I have to say. So. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so this was something sort of a little bit, well, I don't know, out of the blue, but it was last year, April, something like that, when... Um, I just kind of stumbled across this, it was like a women's adventure thing about women into adventure, doing something beyond your comfort zone, something that you've never done before. It was this trip to the Finnmark Plateau, which is in northern part of Norway. It's a huge, huge sort of ice plateau. They do a crossing north to south. They do them east to west as well. People have crossed this before, but what there has never been has been an all-female team to go across it unsupported. So we were with an expedition specialist company called Turgleder and an amazing woman called Liv Engholm, who runs it. She was the expedition leader and they were this team together. And I just sent off this application, not really thinking too much about it and just wondering what would happen. And then out of the blue, I got this correspondence to say, we've seen what you've written and I've talked about Mini Mermaids. We'd love to have you on the team. It was kind of, oh my goodness. And it was like, oh, I'm off to the Arctic. You know, not really sort of, I told people it was, it, it really, it seemed to really capture the imagination. And I think I parked it for a few months and with about six months to go, I thought, right, I think I need to really start seriously thinking about this. At that point in the UK, it must have been around sort of um, August, September. And I thought, right, well, there's no heating on. I've now got to start not allowing myself to get the warmth and the comfort. I'm going to have to start getting used to sort of this cold environment because we had been told that it could be sort of minus 40. Oh no, no. I can't even imagine. I didn't quite know what to expect to be honest and this idea of of pulling this pulk across this terrain. I think the thing is as well a lot of people think you say the word plateau that it's actually very flat or the images you see from the Arctic are very flat. It's far from flat. They're very undulating hills that you have to navigate around. That was a huge challenge. So I certainly started to ramp it up with six months to go and training. Obviously did a lot of winter camping in this country. I'm really blessed. I've got some very good friends. One very good friend who we went off winter camping together in Scotland. And ice swimming, cold swimming, I do that, open water in, in the mountains, which I absolutely love. And just keeping up sort of gym work. 
running, all of those kind of things. It's phenomenal. When I saw pictures of you climbing ice, I was just, well, you know, I love the word gobsmacked because I thought, oh my God. (laughs) I think I probably was a bit at the time as well, actually, but I really loved it. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, that was a little trip just a bit beforehand, which is a thing called the Women's Alpine Adventure Club who put together a winter meet and a summer meet. And that was their winter meet, which was going to be, I think it was four weeks before I was due to go out to Norway. And this was again in Norway, but just in Hemsedal, which is a typical part where they do a lot of ice climbing. It's not too far from Oslo. That was a really great trip to do just beforehand, just to really give me the flavour of the landscape and, and just learn a few skills that may kind of help along the way. I wouldn't necessarily be ice climbing and I wasn't. But there's something as well, the way that makes you feel, you know, the danger and the nerves and controlling your mind when you're feeling a bit afraid. I knew a lot of the mental preparation actually was something I was going to have to be really, really ready for. In some ways, the physical thing, I did sort of reach a point of thinking, the physical thing just is what it is. I'll either be able to do it or I won't. (laughs) The mental stamina, I think, was something that was making me quite afraid. That Would I be mentally strong enough? How did you prepare mentally? Well, I think a lot of that, again, probably drew on yoga and meditation practice. I was doing a very regular meditation. I still do. But just to try and really always keep coming back to that that place of presence and calmness and just an awareness of where I was and that everything is okay. I did have a bit of a wobble, though, just before I did go out there. I think what happened was I'd sort of trained and trained and trained and maybe with about two weeks to go, I felt as if I'd reached a point. I couldn't go beyond that. And it was just as if, probably a bit like preparing for a race, you know, running race or anything. You're kind of all G'd up and you're just ready to go and you just want to get on with it. I think I reached that stage with maybe a fortnight to go before heading out there for the expedition that I just wanted to get on with it. I think the expectation and people talking about it and all that kind of thing. I had a bit of a wobble of feeling, I'm not sure I'm good enough. I'm not sure I'm strong enough. Am I going to be able to keep up? Uh, Obviously, I didn't know the other people, so I had no idea where I was going to sit within this team of six women. Would I be able to to do it? I had huge moments of self-doubt, but I was really blessed. I was surrounded by really good friends, you know, who kept me on the straight and narrow and kept me positive remembering what I've done and what I could achieve and all of that. I went with that. And and I think when it comes to it at the time, I did just kind of, a favourite word of mine that I use in yoga, which is about surrender. I think I did surrender everything to the infinite and just thought, right, this is just what it is. And I'm just going to, just going to give it everything I've got and, and hope it's enough and that I can, that I can do it. And so, like I say, when I got out there, met this amazing team of people and actually I, I didn't need to worry at all. Everyone was so lovely. They just had an, a huge amount of skill, huge amount of, of quiet confidence and very reassuring for the rest of us that they were absolutely keeping us right. So whatever was going to come up, they had us. They were going to make sure that we were okay with the crossing. And uh, everyone was so lovely and we just had a great, we bonded immediately and uh, we kept our spirits quite high most of the time, actually. And I think and on the days when people weren't feeling so great, we sort of looked after each other. What a phenomenal experience. I knew you were going. And I think the last time I saw your post was when you were at the airport. You were getting ready to leave and you said that we wouldn't hear from you for three weeks. I just kept you in my thoughts. You know, I just was hoping it was going well because it was such a huge undertaking. Yeah. I know. I think in some ways, you know, that was worrying me a little bit as well, thinking, you know, I'm not going to be able to communicate. I knew Liv, the expedition leader, had the satellite phone if there was any emergency. 
But just to completely switch off from the world was probably going to be quite a good thing. And in light of where we are now, that was quite an extraordinary experience because this COVID thing was just just brewing when we were heading out there, but nothing to the extent of what it is now. And we didn't know anything about it when we were out there. But with a couple of days left of the expedition, knowing that we were probably going to make it, Liv had a, a satellite message from her husband between them had sort of made the decision that it felt right that they should probably tell us what was going on in the world and that we probably needed to be prepared that things were going to be quite different when we got back and certainly things like our flights may not necessarily exist anymore they're probably being cancelled so that was quite strange with a couple of days to go we got that knowledge but it was quite good I think we needed that I think it might have been more of a shock done it and had the euphoria and then suddenly realized actually this is what's going on in the world so we had all these quiet moments when we were skiing across the plateau in ourselves that we could mentally prepare for what was going to happen of course we didn't know to what extreme things were second guess a lot of stuff too that was one of the things that I was really concerned about knowing that you were coming back but also wondering what's it going to feel like to come back to this world that's not the world as we used to know it. I'm really grateful that they prepared you for re-entry and because you came back to face an entirely different landscape than that which you left. I believe that you have, and I know that I have, spiritually prepared to be with whatever is just to accept and to surrender to what is. Absolutely. So obviously coming back, it was quite a shock because when I did finally manage to get a flight out, luckily, I mean, my flights had been cancelled. I was due to fly back in directly to Manchester. That flight was cancelled. There was nothing flying in there. And there was one final flight going into Gatwick because at this point, Norway was closing all of its international borders. And so you had to get out. There were messages from the UK government saying that we had to return. And I managed to get a flight it took over two days and a bit of an effort. But anyway, got, got a flight from Oslo to Gatwick. And I remember arriving at Gatwick. I mean, it, actually, even Oslo was deserted, but not knowing it really very well, you, you've got nothing to compare it to. But certainly arriving at Gatwick and having always had the experiences of any flight going in there, it's one of the biggest airports in the UK. Always hundreds of people when you're queuing to go through customs and absolutely no one. It was absolutely deserted. And I think it was at that point I thought, wow, this is really quite big. This is quite serious. My bag being one of only three or four coming off the conveyor belt in this whole huge carousel and then getting a train from um, Gatwick into central London to catch a, a train up to Manchester and seeing everybody wearing masks for the first time. And that was quite a shocking thing too. Yeah, it was going from kind of one surreal experience, which had been in the Arctic, to immediately coming into this. But yes, I think you're right. I think there was a strange, maybe like almost a preparation that was taking place in that expedition, which was that I've kind of accepted this. I'm taking a lot of gratitude from very small things. I think that's a practice that I've maybe had for a little while, but certainly now feels like I'm drawing on that more than ever. I think there's a huge, huge amount of healing taking place. And certainly in that first week of returning, I was almost overjoyed in a funny kind of way of feeling like, yes, Mother Nature, Mother Earth has actually reclaimed us. She's saying, right, enough. This, this is now my time to show you who has the power. Everything needs healing. I think so, too. I think that the Earth is showing us. And some people are going to be able to hear that or feel that or understand it. In the first sort of week, maybe when I got back, I was keen to get out and 
do a little bit of trail running because I love all of that. It's where I live. I'm sort of in amongst all the country. I'm very, very fortunate and very blessed that I at least do have this on my doorstep and we are p- permitted to go out to, to exercise, which has been great. But it's funny as, as this time's gone on, because we're now into what, week six or something of, of this lockdown. I've really started to slow down as well, as if I'm just now starting to breathe with the earth a little bit. I'm just moving through things much slower and have no great desire to be out doing big runs and on the bike, which I was doing a little bit of. And I probably still will do it, but I don't know. There's just something about tuning into the earth. You are so connected to the earth. I think this is definitely something, and probably since all of my experience from India and onward, is just this reconnection with the earth and recognising that we are not separate from it. We've removed ourselves so much from, from where we come from and what we're part of. Like you said, you want to share. You want to encourage people to get out of their comfort zone. And no, you don't have to go to India and live in a treehouse on a beach. You don't have to travel to base camp at Everest or trek across the Arctic. But you do have to take that internal journey to find yourself and accept yourself. It's lovely to hear you talk like that because so many people have never actually just sat with themselves. And I think that's probably the most scary thing if you're not ready to sort of see yourself in the situation that this is putting us into. It's asking us to really go inwards, I think, an awful lot. I think you've really hit the nail on the head with being afraid to look at oneself. I think we have to allow ourselves to be open, to be vulnerable, to accept And to know that whatever comes is just an experience that we need, that we'll go through, that we're going to learn, that we're going to grow. Through the pain, we come out stronger on the other side. That's for sure. Everything in life is either a lesson or a blessing. Clear truth. It's just a blessing to be able to talk with you. How I feel about you. Everything that you're doing. And Maddie, I really want to go back to India. I'm like you, you know, I've got a huge, huge longing to return to India. I'd love to go to Varanasi. I've never been back to Nepal and done base camp. I did then travel onwards across the Himalaya into uh, northern India. So I was in the foothills in Rishikesh, and that was a really extraordinary experience. And I really fell in love with Rishikesh. And I would love to go back there and love to sort of travel a little bit further north. I want to go back to McLeod Ganj in Dharamsala. I did go there and visited the Dalai Lama's residence. The Tibetan Buddhists there really touched me. It was wonderful to be there in the foothills of the Himalayas. Thank you, Maddie, so much for spending the time talking with me and catching up. I feel like we should do it more. Even just talking to you here now, it's as if I'm being transported back to that lovely rooftop. You inspire me with all the things that you're doing. Oh, well, I don't know about that, but I'm just trying to be more authentic. I think that when you're a spiritual seeker like I am, you absorb all of these good ideas and conclusions that are being drawn about what this human experience is. And I think all of them, it doesn't matter who you believe in or what your religion is, I think the absolute fundamental thing is love. And I think that's certainly the thing that I now strive towards, is that you do everything from a place of love. That's what I discovered in India also. That was the most important thing. That was our bond, that we're all one we're spirit. And yes, love is the greatest thing in the world. It certainly is. Thanks to Glasgow resident Jonathan Chapman, classically trained musician, artist, website designer, and a really great guy. 
who introduced me to Edinburgh-based Red Note Ensemble and their album, Reels to Ragas, whose music you're listening to with renowned tabla player Kuljit Bamra. For more information, see the show notes at bollywoodandbooks.com where East truly meets West. (laughs) 